Yeah, happy Father's Day. Um, I have a one-month-old, and he decided to just sing my praises all night leading up. Uh, I mean, he just was... Yeah, so if I, um, if I don't make sense... And this happened two weeks ago, or last week I mentioned it. Uh, it was like two weeks ago, I, you know, you lose track of time, sleep deprivation. Um, I don't know when I fell asleep, but it was, it was later than 3.30. That was the last time I angrily... You know, and you get angry, so then you wake up even more when you look at it. I can't so, so angry. He doesn't cry though. It's really weird. He, uh, my son grunts like all through the night. It's really bizarre, but it's loud. So it's like you just hear like a, <clears throat> but it's like deep, like baritone masking. It's a little thing like this big, <clears throat> but it's not rhythmic. Because if it was rhythmic, you know, rhythm would like it was like, <clears throat> that's fine. But it'd be like, <clears throat> it's really bizarre. It's, he's going to be one of those people, and some of you unknowingly went into this. You got married um, to someone, and you just thought they were wonderful, but then they just like snore, growl, flop over. You've, some of you have been assaulted in your sleep because of flying jump kick to your face, and it's just like, it's like but he's, he's like this big, and it, it's just so loud. I mean, four o'clock, the neighbors are coming. Hey, we heard gunshots. Everything okay? It's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. There's a, um, this is weird what I'm about to tell you. There's a fish. Uh, I'm going to be impressed if anyone's ever heard of this fish. Raise your hand if you heard it's called the plainfin midshipman. You got it? You just act smart. You go, of course, the plainfin midshipman. Um, it lives at like the deepest parts of the ocean, but when it's time to mate, it swims to the shallows, like two or three feet, like in bays, and it goes under rocks and waits for like its partner. It's very romantic. I mean, from like the depths of the bottom of the ocean, I found you type of stuff. Um, but, but this isn't connected to King David at all, but it's like this big, but it makes, a, it vibrates, and you can hear it, and it makes a sound like really loud, so loud that it could be heard miles away. They were, they were, the reason why I know about them is because they work great for shark bait, shark bait, shark bait um, because it's making this noise, and the shark know it, and they love it. It'd be like if your favorite food like, made noises at you when you walked by it, like the grocery store. It'd be like, hey, cheesecake talking to you. Um, <laughs> but that's like my kid. That thing's this big and it could be heard for miles away. I mean, my, kid, my kid's like eight, nine pounds. It's like, he's like a hybrid mutant midshipman human thing. It's crazy. Um, so we're in the book of 1 Samuel for the series of David. We're looking at the life of David. A better preacher would connect that illustration. I'm not. Um, in, in this series, we're not just looking at the life of David, although we're doing that. We're looking at what we'll call biblical interpretation. How do the biblical authors communicate meaning? How do they get their point across? Because especially in this type of literature in the Bible, it's historical literature. They're telling you the historical stories of ancient Israel. Now, the historical books are therefore by nature descriptive, not prescriptive. And what I mean by that is prescriptive literature tells you what to do. And then God said, do this. And then God said, don't do that. That's prescriptive. They're telling you what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. Descriptive literature just tells you what happened. Now, oftentimes when we read the Bible, we just want quick prescriptive language. Lord, tell me what you want to do, and you know, I'll do it. And you probably don't, but you at least read the Bible like that. 
descriptive literature is much more, it's much more powerful, it's much more mysterious, much more meaningful. The biblical authors are telling you their stories and they're telling you in a way that they want you to come to the right conclusion. And for all of you teachers, you know this. If you just tell the student the right answer right away, it's gone. But if you help them discover it for themselves, it's more likely to stick. So the biblical authors do this all over, over the place. We've been looking at examples. The first two weeks, we showed how there's two stories in the book of 1 Samuel that parallel each other. At the beginning of this series, week one, we told the story how the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's personal presence and his kingship, was captured by the Philistines and brought into the temple of their god. The god of the Philistines was named Dagon. And so YHWH represents the Hebrew letters that spell out the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. So in the temple of Dagon, there's this sort of spiritual battle that's the Ark of the Covenant representing the God of Israel, Yahweh, and the idol of Dagon. And in that story, Dagon and his, his idol falls face forward and his head falls off. And it's a way of saying the God of Israel, Yahweh, has defeated Dagon and chopped off his head. A few chapters after that, you have the story of David and Goliath. And the way the biblical authors tell that story although we miss it sometimes, is it's trying to present Goliath versus David as Dagon versus the God of Israel. And so what happens when David defeats Goliath? He falls face forward before David, and David chops off his head. And it's a way of putting these two stories parallel with each other to say, this is not just physical battles that are going on, there's spiritual realities at play. But they just don't come and say it, it's just like, at the end of David and Goliath, they don't say like, Footnote, I want you to remember what happened with Yahweh and Dagon in the temple because that parallels this story. It doesn't do that. And great literature and great stories don't do that. So this is historical fact, but it's being told by the biblical authors in a way that communicates the meaning they want you to get out of the story. There'll be more examples of that today. So we're gonna pick up where we left off last week, which is immediately after David defeats Goliath. And I'm warning you, today's gonna to be a speed round because we're gonna go from David defeating Goliath to the end of the life of Saul and the end of the book of 1 Samuel. It's gonna be a fast speed round. Um, don't think it's gonna be a fast sermon. I hope you just cancel your Father's Day plans. I'm saying that we're gonna be moving fast, but we're gonna be traveling 100 miles. Um, that's, that's not true. We wouldn't do that on Father's Day. Would we do it on Mother's Day? You guys know Mother's Day church attendance goes up. Father's Day it goes down. It's messed up. So, so you fathers who are here today, blessed are you. Got a fatherhood problem. Everyone not going to church. Okay. So David lives roughly a thousand years before the time of Jesus. And he's going to be the second king of Israel. The first king of Israel is named Saul. And we're picking up right after Saul was cowardly and would not fight Goliath, but David stepped up to the plate and defeated Goliath. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now already you can kind of see a little bit of foreshadow there. David is being successful, and he's being, he's being seen as successful in the eyes of Saul's men. Just a little, a little hint, a little foreshadow of where the story is going to go. 
And they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. More foreshadow, right? They're giving you hints. What's going to start to occur? You know by the way they're telling the story, Saul is going to get jealous. And this is like all of us at, at this point, right? Like whenever we're compared to someone else's successes, it's like immediate. There's something, there's something in us that begins to, to, to bother us. It's problematic. Saul, he's, you know, killed thousands, but David, his ten thousands. David's just the new kid. He's the rookie on the scene. And all of a sudden, people are singing his praises if you're a highly competitive, even if you just have a little bit of a competitive nature, but especially if you're a highly competitive person, this stuff drives you crazy. This stuff drives you crazy. You always got to realize, though, is that when you're, you know, you're comparing yourself to others, there's always going to be, I mean, this is obvious, always going to be someone ahead of you. I mean, you could be like the best peak of your career. You could be LeBron James, got championship rings, MVPs. But you ain't Kobe. Kobe got five rings. One, two, three, four, five championships. Now, some of you who aren't Lakers fans will, you know, point out, well, what about Michael Jordan? He has one, two, three, four, five, six Michael Jordan. Kobe Bryant compares himself to Michael Jordan. Trust me, that drove him crazy that he didn't get a sixth ring. It drove him crazy. And then for some of you who are super old school, you're like, I don't even care about any of these teams. Let me tell you about the Boston Celtics. <laughs> Boston Celtics for like two whole decades wasn't even a league. They were just the, the best. It was, like, it was like a movie where there's just a super good team beating up on everyone else. It was messed up. So this is what, what's going on. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. From this point forward, Saul is going to go through these massive cycles, and he's going to go to a point and come back and go back to the same point and come back. And this is what it looks like. He goes mad, and he wants to literally kill David, and then David does something that like spares his life and then Saul will say, David, you're such a good faithful servant. I'm sorry I tried to kill you. And he goes back home and then five weeks later, he goes mad again and wants to kill David. It's that root of jealousy and bitterness that even when David spares his life and it kind of temporarily puts out the fire, there's enough, enough spark there and the kindling and sticks are added that the fire goes crazy again. And Saul does this throughout his life, and he's going to go crazy and kill people. We'll see later. He'll kill men, women, and children in order to kill King David. And it starts with this root of bitterness and jealousy. And this is where the biblical authors don't come out and say, hey, reader, um, you should watch out that you don't get jealous, because look what happened to Saul. But what are you supposed to be telling yourself? Oh, this just started with some people singing songs that compared the two, and it leads to murder. And jealousy is, is a fundamental experience to all humans. We all wrestle with it. Pick whatever like is your thing, your vocation, 
your identity. And when you, when you compare yourself with someone else in that, friction happens. Or when you're doing something and you think you should be awarded or rewarded for it and someone else gets the prize. Or someone else gets the glory and you don't. I mean, there's something that, that bothers you. I mean, everyone, pick, pick, pick your vocation, pick your profession, pick your thing. Pastors do it. Pastors do it all the time. I've said this before, but it gets done at pastor's conferences every time. Like pastors, you go to a pastor conference and everyone's like, oh yeah, praise God, how's the church doing? Hearing such good things. You gotta wait 15 minutes because before 15 minutes, it's not allowed. But after 15 minutes of small chat, someone's gonna say, well, like, how, like, how is your church growing? How's it going? Like, is your church growing? Oh, okay, how many, how many people are you at now? And they wanna know how many people go to your church. So, be, so you know, 200, and it goes, oh, oh yeah, we've had a great season. Uh, and then they want you to ask them how big their church is. And they go 200, 300. I'm telling you, they start comparing church stats. And I've said this before, but I do my best always. Do my best to keep a straight face. Oh, Isaac, we, you know, we heard some good things about South Valley. How big, how big is your church? 15,000 people. <laughs> 15,000 solid that's just the adults. We don't count the kids. You read your Bible. They didn't count the kids when Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves. Oh, how many campuses you have? I don't know how many campuses I have. I got, I got pastors that keep track of that. I lost count. Lost count a long time ago. These keep a straight face the whole way through. Yeah, we got a pastor of counting. It's, it's too much to count, man. It's full time, full time employed, bro. How's your church doing? It, it, you could be a pastor. You could be you play video games and compare your, your KD ratio. You can be a musician and like someone does like, some, someone's clearly like doing something legit or there's a band that's starting to, starting to blow up in your local scene. Like, yeah, they're, they're pretty good. They got some unique stuff, but they're just, you know, they're sloppy when they play. They're sloppy. They're not really in the pocket. You musicians, you know exactly the, the language I'm talking about. So it applies to, you got to be in that world. You be a stay-at-home mom. A little play date, got the kids together, going to the park. And sure enough, the moms start, oh, you know, my little Timmy just got an award. He, he, in preschool, he got the award for excellent, caring contributor. And they always spell like some weird acronym in preschool. You know what I'm saying? It's like, awesome. And it's like, it stands for awareness and wonderful. And it's like, oh, yeah, he, he got it for the second time. He's working on, he just be, he was able to count to 100, could tie his shoe. Count to a hundred, and then your kid. You say, hey, baby, can you count to five? He's like, one, two, triangle. Come on, kid. <laughs> Kid's six months older than the other kid. And then the mom's just bragging, you compete. You know what I'm talking about. But then, you know, you call, you know, little Timmy's getting all the credit, you call your son over. Hey, Bob, Bobby, come here. Come here, little RJ. Come here, little RJ. Go knock that kid on the ground and make him cry. <laughs> hey, look. My kid could beat up your kid. <laughs> ABCs. Everyone, whatever, whatever you're at in life, you'll always have the tendency to compare and contrast. Now, here's the thing. When you are first and foremost concerned with God receiving the glory, you won't worry so much when you're robbed of what you think should be given to you. When God is given all the glory, so many other things will fall into place. And we like to pride ourselves on things like, you know, yeah, I have a little bit of jealousy or bitterness or anger in my life, but I'm never going to be like 
King Saul who, who wants to kill somebody. I'm, I never wanted to kill, I would never kill somebody. I've never even thought about killing someone. Really? You never kill somebody. See, King Saul made the laws, he made the rules. If he wanted to kill somebody, he can get away with it. If King Saul wanted to take someone out, he could do it. And people would praise him for it. Whatever he wanted. There's no restrictions. There's no boundaries. King Saul's word is the law of the land. See, so many of us, we pride ourselves like on, oh, I, I can never let it get that far. And the only reason why we would never let it get that far is because we have societal and cultural and legal barriers that keep us in check. Some of us have not killed anybody, not because we're so morally righteous, it's that we don't have the courage and audacity to actually act out the evil desires in our own hearts. Jesus would say later, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But, but I tell you, if you have anger in your heart against a brother, you're liable to judgment. If you have anger in your heart against a brother and sister, you are liable to the fires of hell. What's Jesus getting at? The same root that grows into a little bit of jealousy is the same root that can grow into a tree of murder. Remember the story of Cain and Abel. This is how our history begins. It's the same. See, when sin isn't taken care of, it can grow out of control. And sometimes the only reason why it's taken care of is not because of our own righteousness. It's just, just things that are keeping us in boundaries. This is why most kings, historically speaking, I don't know a percentage or anything like that, but if you're a student of history, you know that like tons of kings, the ones that had like true kingly power, not like modern kings, sometimes it's just a, it's a puppet king, but like kings that their word was like God's word, by the end of their lives, many of them go crazy. They lose it. Or think about celebrities. When you have the power and ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, things spiral out of control. You were not designed to have, no, to have all authority. You were designed to be under authority. I mean, it's sad, but every time there's like a new, wholesome 15-year-old pop singer. Like, oh, they're so wholesome. They go to church. Their, their dad's a minister, even. Give it 10 years, and that person is, is displaying abnormal, erratic behavior and often turns to substance abuse to try to balance it out. We're not made to do that. And so Saul has no restrictions, so he's going to go kill David. Now David gets news that Saul is going to kill him, so he hides. In 1 Samuel 22, we read, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there was with him about 400 men. You can see I put these dotted lines right after verse 22. And the reason why I did that is we don't know how long of time transpired between verse 22 and the next, or verse 1 and, and the next. How long was David in that cave? We don't know. It just says he was there hiding, and then people came to him. Communication travels slow in the ancient world, and travel travels slow in the ancient world. Maybe he was there for a couple days. Maybe he was there for a month. We don't know how long he was hiding in this cave. We do know that he was there long enough to write poetry, write songs. And we can't be certain, but tradition tells us, both biblical and Jewish tradition tells us, that while he was hiding in this cave, David wrote Psalm 57. 
Can't be certain, it's a tradition. He says it wrote Psalm 57 in this period. Before we look at, though, I, I briefly want to talk about these caves because oftentimes we picture the wrong thing when we think about someone hiding in a cave. And sometimes, especially if you grew up in church, you would, you've probably wondered, how could David just hide in a cave like, and not get caught? Like, wouldn't they just like, shine a light in the cave and go, go get him out? Like, how many caves are these? It's not like they couldn't hunt him down. Well, the caves in this area aren't like a, a big giant opening where the light shines in and if there's no grizzly bears in there, you build a nice little fire and take, take a nap. You know, it's just a little dark, a little scary, but it's okay. The, the caves of Adullam are a network of caves and tunnels. And there's places that are open and big and there's places that are very tiny and hard to get through. Has anyone ever been there? Raise your hand, anybody? Anyone been to the caves of Adullam? Okay, I've, you have? Was there a hand? No. Okay, I've been there. I've crawled through and the, the caves there. Um, and I, we can't be certain exactly what network he was in or, or which area he was in, but there's only a few openings in this geographic region to enter into the cave network. Let me show you what, what the entrances look like. Not a big thing. And so you can crawl into these, and sometimes there'll be big spaces, but sometimes there'll be really tight spaces. And what I mean by that is there's points where you have to do a military crawl to get through. So you have to picture David with his life on the run, scared, solitude, alone, by himself, and it's not like he's chilling in a nice, luxurious cave. He's hiding in these small areas. The reason why people would hide in them is because soldiers wouldn't go into them because someone could easily kill you from the other side. And secondly, it's hard to military crawl when you have armor and swords are on you. So it's a way for criminals to hide out, but it's terrifying, it is scary. When I was there, they warned like, if, if, hey, if you're claustrophobic or anything, you don't like small spaces, don't go in. So okay, just from that picture, how many of you are not going in? See, like fit, like yeah, like, have you, nah, nah. Promised land rats up in that cave, man, some big giant ones. But then as we got to it, and the, the, the half the people that were saying they could do it, like as soon as they stuck their head in or like went in it, then about the other half dropped out. Or they're, they're like, nah, nah. Because, you know, at least with some of the dudes, they got to act like they're not afraid. But then when they get in, they're like, mm-mm, not going to happen. So uh, I'll give you an idea. So that's a big, that's not, that's not too scary, especially if you've got a flashlight and stuff. Not too bad. You can go through the caves of a dome. I'll hide there. But then when you get to like that, but you don't have a headlamp, you don't have cameras, you don't have technology. Oh, and by the way, even if you had a big torch, when you're gonna to start to military crawl through some of these places, there's a good chance it goes out, or in the night it goes out, so there could be potential darkness. But look at that. Some of you would have made it that far, and then you'd be like this dude. Hey, baby dog, you go first. It's Father's Day, you go first. <laughs> and then, and, and they're connected. There's, there's these networks of tunnels. I remember there was one, I, I went in and for the most part I wasn't afraid, but what, like I started, you know when you're not afraid of something and then you realize that maybe you probably should be afraid of it? It's like, so there was a part where it kind of dips down and curves up on a military crawl, so your body has to like make a little bit of a U in military crawl. And like as I'm going, she was like, there's a good chance my body doesn't bend that way. And then I get stuck like that. And it's really creepy. I mean, your heart starts to race. I mean, it's, it's this scary stuff. 
And when you make a, say you're going through there, and then what happens when you get to a point where it gets too small? And then you got to reverse your way out. And you don't want to get stuck there. So, yes, there's big openings, but there's small points. And the point is it's a network of caves and tunnels that you can hide in. So remember David. Very early on in his life, he was told, you would be king. You would be here, high and exalted. But through a set of circumstances, he's descended. Descended into the darkness of the cave. He's alone, solitude, by himself. And it's there that tradition tells us, he writes this. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. That's powerful. That's powerful. See, David didn't wait till he was delivered from the storm. You know what I mean? That's how most of us do. We stress and worry when we're in trial and tribulation. We stress and worry when the bills are piling up. We stress and worry, and then when and if God delivers us, then we sing it. Thank you, Lord, for for my deliverance. Thank you, you, you protect me. Thank you for your faithfulness. David, in the darkness and despair, in the solitude, in the loneliness, it is there in that place David declares the goodness of of his God. And in one sense, David is alone, but in another sense, he is not alone. Do you see how David is constructing this? I am alone, but I am not alone. My soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's the image of like a mother eagle watching over her babies. He is alone, but he's not alone. This cave is a fortress. It is fortified. It is a refuge because the personal presence of the living God is with him. The psalm goes on. He will sin from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down with fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Again, whenever the Bible's using images, picture it. It's David. He's there alone in the cave and he's describing his situation. There's animals and the beasts are around him and these beasts have teeth that are like spears and swords and arrows and they are about to come in on him except the presence of God is protecting him. The beast encircle me. And then be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is a poetic device called the Hebrew merism. It's where you take two polar opposites like heaven and earth. It's, it's a way of saying heaven and earth, but everything in between. So David says, let the sum total of existence praise you. Be exalted, O God. In the cave, in the despair, in the solitude, in the trial, the storm, the tribulation, David says, be exalted, O God. And this is how we should respond. David doesn't say, oh, you promised to make my life good. David's life is going to be up and down for the rest of his life. But he says, I have the presence of my God with me, and in him I will take refuge. After this cave incident, 1 Samuel has its winding down through like 10 chapters. 
And in that time, David will have the opportunity to kill Saul twice. And on both occasions, David will spare the life of Saul. And on both occasions, Saul will have this like baby repentance. Oh, David, you, you are a faithful servant. You don't want me harm. You don't want to kill me. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to kill you anymore. And then, like I said earlier, give it some time. The bitterness, the jealousy, the root, and the tree grows. And then David wants to kill, Saul wants to kill David again. At the peak of this, the pinnacle of Saul's sin, Saul consults a medium. And what I mean by medium is someone who practices occultism, witchcraft, sorcery, necromancy, talks with the dead, something that's absolutely forbidden in the Bible. And so it represents Saul's, the culmination of his sin and rebellion against God. Saul, who used to trust in the Lord God, is now consulting occultic practices. And that lets you know, as a reader, this is going to go really bad really quick. Shortly after that, David uh, continues his up and down in life, and he's off with his 400 men in some battle, and when he returns to their camp, all the, the women, the wives, the children have been captured. You need to know in the ancient world, it's, it's, it's similar to how it is in most places in the world. If, if the bad guys take your wives, your women, and your children, the most horrific things imaginable await the people you love most in life. And so David is in absolute despair. It couldn't get any worse for him. The language describes him as like, want, like wanting to die. And the, the other men are all in distress. And things are so bad that a, a group of them actually say, this is all David's fault, so let's kill him. And they plan to stone him. To make a long story short, God is merciful. David isn't stoned. He leads some men, and they rescue back the women and children. But it's, it's not easy for David and the reason why I'm saying this is it's not like David gets delivered from the cave and everything's all sunshine. It's a very, very problematic, distressing story. Lastly, the book ends with a battle, a fight between the Philistines and Israel as Saul leads Israel. Now, if you've read 1 Samuel, you might be familiar with this ending. And if you've read 1 Samuel, you'll remember that it's like, like anticlimactic, weird, bizarre, brutal, graphic. It's like, you know when you watch a movie that's been kind of good and, and then it's going to get to the ending and you're like, that can't be the ending. There's no way the credits are going to roll up right now. There's no way the, cre the credits rolled up. You know what I'm talking about where you're watching a movie? It's like, that can't be the ending. And it's like, what? Are you kidding me? That's the way this, this movie's going to end? This is the ending of 1 Samuel. Remember, we want the authors to come tell us, this is the point of the book of 1 Samuel and the ending to the movie. They're going to communicate meaning the way they want to communicate meaning and the point of the story. And this ties all of it together. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and f fell slain on Mount Geboah. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Mekeshua, the son of Saul. Saul's sons are killed in this final battle. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And he was so badly wounded by the archers 
Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So this is super tragic. Saul is at such a low point that he asks one of his servants to kill him, but not even his servant will do his wish. Probably for, for good motive here, but his servant won't do it. And so Saul falls on his own sword because he knows what's await, what awaits him. He says, I don't want to be mistreated. And again, all of this stuff is brutal. The ancient world is brutal. The real world is brutal. We're just so blessed to be, to be removed from it all. And we live in a great place and time, but this is not normal. It's abnormal. What happens to kings at this time period, if you're captured, is, is absolutely horrific. The worst type of torture is done to you, and it's symbolic torture usually. So um, sometimes kings, and this happens to the kings of Israel at the end of the Old Testament, um, they, they kill your children in front of you. Clearly, they just killed Saul's children. So you bring their dead bodies, you show Saul, and then you gouge out their eyes so the last thing they see before they lost their sight was their dead children. Then you go on and humiliate them and torture them. One of the things most common at this geographical location, this area, and at this time period, is they would cut off the thumbs and the toes of the king. And that, again, had symbolic and functional purposes. You cut off the thumb, why? Can't hold a sword. You're no longer a warrior. You're no longer a man. You're no longer the king. Cut off the toes because you don't have balance and you can't walk. And so what they would do, a very common practice is, you take a king, you cut off the toes and thumbs, and then they would be housed in the king's court, and they would just live crawling around begging for crumbs from the king's table for the rest of their life. The book of Judges actually begins with this story about a king bragging about how he's done that to 70 people. So This isn't like extra biblical stuff that's outside of the Bible. Like This is if you read your Bible, you're going to experience all of this stuff. You're going to see it and hear it. And it's important that Christians see it, read it, and feel it because so many other people who aren't Christians pick up a Bible and they see it and they go, how could you, you know, all this crazy stuff is in the Bible, do you believe this? And your response needs to, you need to be able to tell the difference between prescriptive and descriptive literature. This isn't saying that's a good thing. This isn't prescribing something that Christians ought to be like. This is describing the brutality of the story of ancient Israel. So how is this setting up the climax of the book of 1 Samuel? Samuel starts as king, and now he's lowered to the point where even his servants, whom he tells to kill him, disobey. But that's not how it ends. A few more verses. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboah. So they cut off his head... How did Samuel begin? A battle between Yahweh and Dagon. Dagon falls, head chops off. David, Goliath, Israel's God victorious. Goliath falls, head chopped off. How does Saul's life end? How does the book of 1 Samuel end? Saul gets his head chopped off. And look what they do. This is critical. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. 
If you are, see for us, it's just, oh, this is historical detail. If, if you're an ancient Israelite reader, you're going, this is shameful. They killed Israel's king and they brought the good news into the temple of Dagon, their gods. This is shame upon us. I mean, this is the type of stuff you throw dirt on your face and cry out, not our people, not, not his body to Dagon. Verse 10, they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan so that when anyone walks by, look what happened to Saul. This is what happens when you mess with Dagon. This is what happens when you mess with the Philistines. Now here's the last two verses. This is how the book ends. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, and all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, if you're a modern reader, you go, oh, that's sort of, I guess, like a little bit of a happy ending. They took the body that was shamefully being displayed and, and they gave it like a, like a proper burial. Uh-uh. First off, at this time period, uh, cremation wasn't approved of in, in Jewish thought at this time period. They, they, want, a, they want a proper burial. You want to be placed in the ground, not burned. Secondly, and more importantly, there's a scene being depicted Saul's bones that have been burned are placed under the tamarisk tree. They put them under the tamarisk tree. Always be picturing the image that's being portrayed. Bones under the tamarisk tree. Now, if you'd been a, a studious reader of 1 Samuel, you'd be going, that's a weird ending, just bones under a tamarisk tree. What's significant about that? Then you might say, oh, the tamarisk tree. I remember when Samuel talked about that. Happens roughly 10 chapters earlier, and it's the scene where Saul commits his most vile, horrendous sin. It's the peak of Saul's evil. It's the place where Saul is so embittered and hateful to to David that he slaughters men, women, and children. And it takes place at the Tamarisk tree. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the, te- the te- Tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. This is another image. Saul is sitting like a king, spear in hand, sticking up straight, who's around him, his servants who obey whatever he does. See it, Saul, sitting, reigning, power, prestige, spear in hand, militaristic might, servants to do his will. And it's at that place under the Tamarisk tree that Saul finds out that there was a priest who helped David. And this priest gave David bread and let him escape. Paul, Saul then orders not only that priest to be killed, it's a significant ordering a priest to be killed, he orders his entire family, the entire lineage, and all the priests that were in that area to be slaughtered because they gave David help, they gave him bread. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priest And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. 
and Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman and child and infant and ox and donkey and sheep he put to the sword. It is there under the tamarisk tree that Paul slaughters men, women, children, babies. Underneath the tamarisk tree is where Saul's burned bones now rest. You, you see what they're doing. Picture a movie where there's a 12-year-old boy who's walking home with his dad. Maybe they saw a, a late movie, and they're coming home, and it's a dark, super cold, pictured even snowing maybe, and they're walking home. And on their walk home, they're, they're robbed, and there's a man who kills the 12-year-old boy's father. And you have to picture the scene the director puts an effect on it, so everything's kind of like a blue tint. It's filtered through a blue, so everything's blue and dark, but the man who kills the boy's father has a red scarf on, and the red scarf is accentuated. It's bright in the scene. Clearly, you remember the red scarf. The movie goes on, and it's about the development of the child and how he, for the rest of his life, is filled with hate and wants to take out the man who killed his father. At the end of the movie, the boy, now grown up in his 30, finds the man who kills his father, and he walks into the room where the murder is, and guess what the boy, who now is a man, has around his neck? A red scarf. And it's the director's way of letting you know you have to see these two infusing each other with meaning. They run parallel. You, have to, you cannot come to the right conclusion about this movie unless you've seen both scenes. Paul with power and might and glory and privilege under the tamarisk tree, slaughters the innocent. How does his life end? Not here. Here, buried bones tamarisk tree. David is in the cave, refuses to kill Saul. At the beginning of 2 Samuel, the sequel, if you will, David is crowned king. It's sort of like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. When you read your Bible and you look for these things, it becomes so much more exciting. If you just read your Bible and you're always looking, okay, Lord, tell me what to do, it can become boring and dry. I mean, think about this. This is true of like a romantic relationship. Think about it. It's your anniversary. Okay, tell me what you do. What, rose, what color roses do you want? Blue ones? Red ones? They don't make blue roses? Is there any discount on roses? You see any cells? Where do you want to go out to eat? Which, by the way, is like the, the, the source of all marital strife. Where do you want to go out to eat? You're going to decide on that. You decide. I don't know. But it's the surprise of, of that, that's what makes romance romance, right? You don't know where it's going. It's a dance. You sort of know where it's going, but you're following a lead. The biblical authors are brilliant. They're writing amazing, amazing literature. And it's historically true, but the way they're communicating meaning, you, you can't just expect them to go, the point of this story is Saul did this at the Tamarisk tree, and he did this at the Tamarisk tree. Watch it and pay close attention to the way they're doing. You get so much more out of it. Now, to conclude, I just want to talk to two, peop two different types of people in this room, two kind of lessons coming out of this This speed round. Um, there are some of you in this room who might be holding on to a bitter root, might be jealous, might be comparing yourself to someone. And so uh, if that's you, 
It might be time to forgive, let go, ask God to take away that jealous root. Remember, jealousy can start small, but you have no idea how big it can grow. And as a pastor, I know there's people, and this happens in families, where people just be jealous and bitter against family members for their entire life. They go to, they go to, the, they go to death with it. And I'm not saying some of it's not deserved, because a lot of it is. But being jealous, being bitter against people, doesn't, doesn't, it's not good for your soul. So today, if you're in that camp, we're about to take communion, and the ushers can pass communion out. As we prepare for communion, confess that sin to God. Say, Lord, I, I, help me. If, when I care about you getting the glory, everything else falls into place. I want you to get the glory, and, and no one else. Lord, and deal with my bitterness, deal with my jealousy, heal my heart. Confess that sin. And the second person I want to talk to today is someone who, man, you can't even think about sin in your life right now because you, you are stuck in a cave all by yourself. And what I mean by that is you're in a, a trial, a tribulation, there's a storm in your life. And again, as, as, a, as a pastor of a, of a church that has relatively... A, a decent amount of people on a Sunday morning, I know every single week, I mean, you just have to look at our, our prayer list that goes around. Every single week, there's someone who finds out they have cancer, someone who gets transferred to hospice care, someone who is, who is aging and their body is just shutting down, someone whose marriage is falling apart, someone who has financial crisis. I mean, it is all over the place. I know it's in this room. God does not promise to take care of all of your earthly problems. He did not promise David a good, clean, easy life. But in the midst of that cave, God promised his presence. God said, I am with you. I am near. David was absolutely alone, but he was not alone. In the solitude, in the darkness of the cave, he was alone, but he was not alone. And so for you, if you're in that place, whatever it may be going through, I can't promise you Victory or miracle, but I can promise you the words of Psalm 57. As you cry out to God, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose. Whatever it is, the wings of almighty God watch over you. They give you comfort, and they give you grace. So some of us, let's use this time for confession, and for some of us, let's use this time to, to cry out to God and ask for mercy and his presence. You are not alone in that cave, despite what your feelings may say, despite what the world may say. You are not alone. David wrote another psalm that sounds a lot like Psalm 57. It's Psalm 22. And it's about being alone and despair and having the animals, just like Psalm 57, the lion and the bulls encircle him. But when you read it, you begin to realize that Psalm 57 was clearly about David's circumstance, but Psalm 22 was not about David. Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. 
If you've been a Christian a long time, you know that first line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoted by Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. And then a thousand years before Jesus was nailed to a cross, David prophetically describes the experience. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My, my tongue sticks to my jaws. Remember the request for, for water. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, he cries out. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, yama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, in that moment, Psalm 22 and the, the crucifixion of Jesus come together. And in that moment, Jesus goes into the cave on your behalf. Jesus goes to the cross on your behalf. Jesus goes to the darkest hour on your behalf. So that no matter what happens in this lifetime, no matter what trials or tribulations you have, your greatest problems and greatest enemies have been defeated. Jesus is the ultimate David who defeats the ultimate Goliath. And so as we take these elements, we recognize that Jesus experienced the despairs of Psalm 22 and 57, but he doesn't experience them for nothing. He experiences them on our behalf and ultimately is resurrected in power and glory and promises you that in this life you will have trouble, but take hope because he has conquered the world. And he gives you his presence now here. Let's stand. Paul tells us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is now the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And may we drink today and proclaim today his death until he returns. Father God, for the people in this room who were convicted about a sin issue, of bitterness and jealousy. We ask for continued conviction, and maybe today is, is a miraculous day where it all goes away, but, or maybe today is just the first step in a process where we begin learning to forgive and dealing away with je jealousy. Keep our eyes focused on you so that you get all the glory and everything else will fall into place. 
and for the people who are in the storm and in the darkness of the cave. Remind them they are not alone. You love them. You watch over them like a mother eagle with her babies. Lord, you are good, and we thank you this Father's Day that no matter what our background may be, we all share in a very good, gracious Father. We love you. We give you thanks today. It's in your son's Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You all have a wonderful day. If you would like prayer, there will be prayer leaders up front.